Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming. And he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Then he said to disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go, do not set off in pursuit. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must endure much suffering and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so too will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed all of them. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a couple days ago, I read a review of a new Paul Simon. I guess you can still call them albums, even though that's not what it is anymore, right? And I, frankly, have not downloaded or bought a Paul Simon album for 25 or 30 years. I think Rhythm of the Saints was the last one I listened to. But I read the review and I listened to this in its entirety uh, last night. It's called Seven Psalms. And the first of the piece begins with, I've been thinking about the great migration. Okay, Paul Simon is 81 years old. And the great migration that he's thinking about is what happens next. And there was this comment about the uh, piece. It's actually seven works that go right into each other. It's fascinating. And it said it was conceived in a dream and sketched out during a series of pre-dawn sessions before the towns of logic took hold. Seven Psalms is frankly a mysterious album. That's what the reviewer said. And I do think this is one of the best ways to think about eternity. Somewhere between night and dawn, somewhere in the mystery of what we know and what we don't know, somewhere between the mystery of beautiful song and a singing silence, as Dante talked about it. And we're going to look at three different readings today uh, that have us thinking about eternity, or at least Jesus helps us think about eternity. Now, the first reading is kind of the bad news, right? <laughs> now, I know this is Ascension Sunday, but I want to give you a Christmas question. Okay, Pretend we're all in family feud, all right? Is that show still on? Yeah. All right. Now, obviously, I'm not aware of it, but it was, it's kind of a fun thing, all right? All right, so if the question was, what are... Classic Christmas films, okay? Survey says, what would be your first guess? Wonderful Life, Bing, that's my first one, all right? 
miracle in 34. I don't know if the survey got that, all right? But I have, my number two would be some version of a Christmas carol, right? All right, very good. Now, it's a wonderful life at a Christmas carol. You take away the last five minutes of both those movies, <laughs> and they're pretty dark stories, right? If you stop and think about it. They are both about death and about judgment. I can't help but think that Dickens was a bit inspired by our parable today, right? Because the man asked, send Lazarus back from the dead to warn my brothers. Isn't that what Marley does? Comes back from the dead to mourn Scrooge. And even though in the 1940s, America was still predominantly Protestant, okay, George Bailey is about to commit suicide a mortal sin in the Catholic Church. This wonderful man is about to leave his family, his children, destitute in the midst of a scandal. I know Jimmy Stewart's charming, but that's a pretty lousy thing to do, right? The parable about, about Lazarus is a similar kind of morality tale. Both Scrooge or Dickens' Christmas Carol, and It's a Wonderful Life of Morality Tales. And this parable, and again, it's a parable. Jesus is not necessarily teaching us about what happens next in the parable about Lazarus and the rich man. But it does give us a couple interesting notes. First of all, the bosom of Abraham, which shows up in latter rabbinical works. This is the first time we ever see that idea of the afterlife. And again, probably what's pictured here is Hades had three or four sections. I guess there were three neighborhoods, three or four neighborhoods in Hades in apocalyptic Judaism. Uh, Lazarus is in the neighborhood you want to end up in. Okay. The rich man is not where you want to end up. Okay. But again, this is not really this you know, medieval understanding of hell here. It's this place of, of death. And so there's this, that, that's going on. And even more importantly, it reflects a very important component of how the Jewish Christian understanding of the afterlife came into existence. You see, injustice in this world was an important impetus for Christian and Jewish thinking about what happens beyond the grave. The idea that those who get away with extortion and murder in this life will someday have to stand before an ultimate judge. And conversely, as Jesus proclaimed, blessed are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep, for you will be happy, you will laugh. This idea that whatever all the injustices in, in this life Okay. And the discrepancy between those who had and had not was, was maybe even worse than it is now. And somehow that it will be made right in the life to come. And it's really interesting. I'm not really going to spend a lot of time on this parable, but I encourage you to think about it. What is the only thing we know that the rich man did wrong? What's the only crime that's, that he... He has committed. 
neglect. A poor man literally starves to death on his doorway. And he maybe was a busy, important guy. He maybe never even saw him. He was too busy getting to go where he had to go. And so part of this idea, um, I know, again, I joke about we live in this time where everybody gets a trophy for participation. Right? All right. But the Bible takes seriously that there's an awful lot of injustice that never gets taken care of in this life. And that's part of what this story is about. There is a reckoning. And it's a very interesting thing because, again, I love the rich guy saying, okay, all right, can you, can, Abraham, can you send Lazarus to go warn my brothers? He hasn't quite gotten over himself yet, right? He may be in torment, but he's still, uh, let this guy go work for me, okay? All right, all right. And if you get it done quickly, there'll be a little something in it for you, Abraham, as well, right? He, <laughs> it's kind of comical. And it's a stark. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. And the guy goes, well, you no, know, if someone comes back from the dead, that'll wake them up. And of course, it's a foreshadowing, right? Even if someone comes back from the dead, that won't change them. Yeah, I've often heard people say, if I could only see a miracle, I could believe easier. Well, the Bible's full of thousands of people who saw miracles. And that didn't really change their perspective, right? So we just let the bad news float out there a little bit, all right? But how about some good news? What happens next? The uh, president emeritus of Harvard, uh, Catherine Drew Faust, wrote a great book. The book's probably 20 years old now. But it's called The Republic of Suffering. It's how the Civil War changed our whole cultural approach to death. It's a fascinating book. And this idea of the good death goes back really to the medieval age. Uh, it's a Christian idea, whether or not one dies in the faith, right? So when Luther was dying, everybody was, was around his bed, you know, hoping he didn't say, oh my gosh, I made a big mistake, right? <laughs> and he didn't. So there was great comfort in that. So this idea of a good death, um, if you think about death before there was morphine, painkillers, antibiotics, okay. And dying, you know, I, I've, seen, I've seen some really easy deaths and I've seen some, some rough ones, okay? And so dying is not easy, okay? So, although sometimes it's just remarkably, I, I think of tragedies that have happened, I go, oh, how easy it is for death to happen. And then I've seen some really lingering ones. And so this idea of the good death is to be a foreshadowing, if you would, of what is going to come, the life to come. So it's really about the living, right? Again, it's why, why do funerals are not about the dead. Funerals are for the living, right? And she makes this quote. She says, it's a great quote. She says, how one died thus epitomized a life already led and predicted the quality of life everlasting. Newspapers during the Civil War were full of antidotes about how these young men died well, died with thoughts of mother, and died in the arms of Jesus. So, 
It was a way of trying to give some comfort for this idea that my son is dying 500 miles away from his home. One would not expect to find a good death at a public execution, let alone a Roman crucifixion. But that's exactly what we get in Luke chapter 23. We read this text Good Friday here. Jesus is on the cross, and on either side of him are two thieves being executed as well. And one of the thieves mocks Jesus. But the other thief rebukes his companion and says, you and I deserve to be up here. This man does not. And then he turns to Jesus in his dying breaths and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. We don't get a lot from Jesus about what happens next. But this is pretty good news. Maybe great news. Today is Ascension Sunday. It's not something we often talk a lot about, but what's important about Ascension Sunday is this idea that Jesus, who was embodied, is somewhere. Okay? We don't necessarily believe in a cosmic Christ, per se. We believe that Jesus was born, he lived, he died, was resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, as the Creed says. And this is this idea that is for us, that we're not left alone in this universe. Now, next week's Pentecost, and that's a whole other dimension of it. But, but Jesus, some of his last words was to this convicted criminal, Today you'll be with me in paradise. John Calvin said this, But since he has gone up there and is in heaven for us, let us note that we need not fear to be in this world. It is true we are subject to such misery that our condition is often pitiable, but that we neither be astonished nor confine our attention to ourselves. We look to our head, who's already in heaven, and although I am weak, there's Jesus Christ who is powerful enough to care, to protect, to pray, to greet us there. Pretty powerful idea. Again, it's one of those strange ideas. We don't quite really know totally what it means. But he goes on to say, although I am feeble, there's Jesus Christ who's my strength. And though I'm full of miseries, Jesus Christ is an immortal glory, and what he has will sometime be given to me, and I shall partake of all his benefits. This idea that where he is, someday we will be, is part of what gives us comfort in this life. But it's, it's often misunderstood that this idea of heaven is just something that's a future tense thing that we may or may not understand, or there's all kinds of stories, we project all kinds of things on it. But what's happening now is exactly related to what will happen next. Because Jesus says a lot of different things about the kingdom, but in our text today, it says the kingdom is here among you. In other words, what is alive in us now 
the joy, the hope, the peace, even though they may be fleeting, are foretaste of what will be. Ascension, in many ways, is about eternity now. Jesus, in his priestly prayer in, in John 17, says, I'm in you, they are in me. That where I am, they will be also. This idea that we are in Christ, we are baptized into Christ. And so that to be present in this life is to be in the presence of God. And that there's a sense, even though what happens next is this great unknown, there's comfort in that the one we pray to here is the one who not only holds our todays, but also holds our tomorrow. In Dante's Paradiso, his poetic vision of heaven, there's this back and forth between music. There's all kinds of music. Heaven sings, okay? In hell, there's only noise in Dante. But in heaven, the whole universe sings. Except periodically, there's this silence. And that reminds us that to truly be in the presence of God is something that we cannot comprehend. What happens after this life? The Bible is pretty vague about it. And it's beyond, our, uh, it's beyond our comprehension, really. But this powerful idea that the dance between music and silence, the dance between the joys of this life and those moments of silent glimpses we have that God is with us, is part of what heaven is about. And so there's a sense where Jesus challenges us. It matters what happens in this life. <laughs> Christianity, because we believe God became flesh, matter matters. Real human beings matter. The poor, the suffering, the injustice, those matter to God. And there's also this future hope. Whatever is to happen, we have this promise that today you will be with me that God will never leave us or forsake us. But there's also this powerful idea that eternity begins now. And that can give us courage. In our weakness, we know that God is strong. In our fear, we can trust that God is with us. In our days of mourning, we know that death did not have the final word for Jesus, and we by faith believe it does not have the final word for us. So you got Mozart. In a minute, you're going to get some blues. But I grew up in a tradition where we didn't know how much to talk about heaven, but we, we did like to sing about it.